going to read from Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we are going to be reading from verse 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. This is God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his, Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far God's word. Join with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken, and that you have confirmed your word, and we can trust it. Lord, we pray right now that you would be faithful to the promise that as Christ is lifted up in preaching, whether that be from a pulpit or from the mouth of a co-worker or a father at family devotion times or a mother putting her child down for a nap. You promise that as the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted high, that you would draw men to yourself. Lord, I pray you do that right now. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for the kids. Whose birthday is it tomorrow? It's not my birthday. Whose birthday is it tomorrow? Come on, you should know this. Whose birthday is it? It's Jesus' birthday tomorrow. That's right. It's Jesus' birthday tomorrow. So about 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born, and his mother's name was? His, yes, exactly. His mother's name was Mary. Jesus, before he was born, he lived. Because Jesus is God. Jesus, lived, Jesus created the world. He was there before the world was even made. So Jesus has always been around. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. He became a human. Just like you and me, he became a human the way that we all start. We all start as babies. Jesus came down from heaven. Jesus didn't start as a human, and then he became our rescuer. Jesus started as God, and then he was sent from heaven. He was sent by God from heaven to rescue us. The Bible says that for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That means Jesus was already there already in heaven, and then he sent him to become a human. God had to send us a rescuer from heaven because we couldn't save ourselves. 
No human being had ever been born that was able to save themselves, and certainly not who was able to save other people from their sins. Rescue had to come from outside of the world. Rescue had to come from heaven. Now, God helps us do things. There's lots of things that we can do, and God helps us do these things. God helps us do things. But the most important things, the most important things, God doesn't help us do. He does them by himself. He does help us do things. But the most important things that God does, he does instead of us, like saving us from sins. God doesn't help us save ourselves. He does it instead of us. Jesus didn't help us die on a cross for our own sins. Jesus did that instead of us. Jesus didn't help us defeat death by being raised from the dead. No, Jesus did that instead of us. And God promises that one day the whole world will be made new. Think of all the things that you look at in the world that make you sad, maybe make you cry. Maybe you've been to a funeral where someone died. You're sad. Think of all those things in the world that make you sad. God promises that one day, if you're a Christian, you will look in the world and you'll see nothing wrong, only goodness. God promises that the world will one day be new, perfectly new. But God says that that will happen not because we'll help him do it, not because he'll help us do it, but he will do it by himself when Jesus comes the second time. Our first point is this. The strength that God gives is wonderful, but it is not enough to save. The strength that God gives is wonderful, but it is not enough to save. So God helps his people. If you've read the Old Testament, if you read the New Testament, it is actually, in many ways you could see it is a book that is showing God helping his people. God gives his people strength to work. This is why we thank God for our food, even if we've worked for it. God gives us strength to build shelters or buy shelters, to make clothes or buy clothes. Everything we have is because the Lord has helped us. He has helped us do things. God even loves us so much that he helps us obey him. He, God gave his people his law. He said, sometimes you're confused about what is right and wrong. I will give you my law. I'll write it down on stone tablets. I'll make you know that this man who gave it to you, Moses, is actually speaking for me because I'll surround him with lots of miracles so no one would deny that these are God's rules. He gave them to us. And then he also, for people who trust in Jesus, he also gives us his Holy Spirit to help us to obey his law. God gave his people in the Old Testament, he gave them a land, a land that they could obey God in. And he protected them so obeying God's law didn't make them more vulnerable. He protected them and he gave them strength. He even gave them strength to, to fight their enemies. Yet no one will be saved by using the strength that God supplies. You may be familiar of the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee is this. There's two men who go to, go to the temple to pray. 
A tax collector who everybody knew was a sinner. Everybody, that's what was an insult. You knew you were a sinner. You couldn't do that job in that time without really sinning. And the Pharisee, somebody who everybody thought was definitely going to be in heaven because he's so good. They both go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. I thank you that I am better than him. I, essentially, the Pharisee was thanking God for God's help to make him a good person. And he was sure that that's how he'd get to heaven. But the tax collector was so ashamed of his sin, he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And so all he said was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus surprised the people who were hearing this parable by saying, only one of those people was forgiven. Only one of those people was freed by the court of heaven. And that was the tax collector. Because the Pharisee was actually giving God the glory for making him a good person. He said, thank you, God, for making me a good person. And Jesus says, that is not how you get to heaven. You do not get to heaven with the strength that God helps you do things. You get to heaven by something that God does instead of you. Now and again in the Old Testament, God would foreshadow that salvation was from the Lord, not something God helps you do, but God does instead of you. Often in the Old Testament, you find Israel wins battles with a few swords against a lot of swords. And that was meant to say, hey, God is giving you strength to win this battle. And that was lovely. But once in a while, Israel will win a battle that they didn't even participate in. They wake up in the morning and the enemy is gone. And all that's left is all the, all the enemy's gold and silver and cheese and food. And this was to show that even though God gives us wonderful strength and he helps us, that is not how we will be saved. We are to lift our eyes to heaven. And as Kevin read from Psalm 121, where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth. We are to look not for the strength that God supplies for us to, to save ourselves, but we're, look, we're looking for a savior that would come from heaven. And that's our second point. We could not produce our own redeemer, not even with God's help. We could not send a man to heaven. We think about the promise of the U.S. president that we will send a man to the moon. Remember that famous promise, the moonshot? We could not send a man to heaven. And God gave us a few thousand years to try. It never happened. And of course, God wasn't waiting for us to, to see if we could do it. He knew we couldn't, but he showed we couldn't do that. God's people were never able to produce a savior who could rescue them from their own sins. The best of those rescuers, think of David and Gideon. They themselves were marked by their own sin and they could not rescue God's people from sin. We couldn't produce a man to send him to heaven and to take us with him. So God had to send one down to us. 
And the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus was the clear sign that the Savior had been given to us, not produced by us with the help of the Lord. I was reading in Genesis earlier this week, and what what Eve says when a son is born to her, she says, I have given birth to a man with the help of the Lord. This is different. This is different than what Mary would have said. And that is God has sent a Savior. God has given his Son to us. Because normally, for a child to be born, it takes a human mother and a human father coming together. And over and over again in Scripture, we find this did not happen with Mary and Joseph. This was a son that was given, not one that was produced. This was a rescuer sent from heaven, not one that God helped us produce. Jesus focused on this. If you turn to John 8, Jesus focused on this idea And it was something that the Pharisees were very upset at him for saying. Go to John 8, and we're going to read 12 to 30, a good chunk of it. And I'm just going to make a few comments and just show how it relates to our passage, just to get our heads around this. This is a major theme, actually, especially in the book of John, if you read this. Right? We already read in John, or read, I quoted John 3, (laughs) that God sent his son. This is a major theme in the book of John. John loves this. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury and as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to you, I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. That's the end of our passage. So just review, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Earlier in John, he had said, I'm the light that has come into the world. 
the leaders say, we don't believe you. You must be lying because in a court of law, it doesn't count for you to just testify about yourself. Somebody else needs to say that you came from heaven. You can't just say it yourself. And Jesus said, I know better than you where I came from because I came from there, but I'm not the only one who testifies that I came from heaven. He said, the Father testifies about me. The Father, God the Father has testified, has shown, has said, has declared, has proven that Jesus came from heaven. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, how did the Father testify about Jesus coming from heaven? What was the way that God the Father said to the world, this guy came from heaven, I sent him? Many ways. The virgin birth is the first way that we see that this is very clear. He sent the angels to say, this is not going to be a child naturally born, but one sent from heaven into Mary's womb. The angel declaration to the shepherds. Jesus' many miracles were God telling the world, this guy came from heaven. Jesus being able to control future was God saying, or creation and future, yeah, was God saying, this is the one who created the world. God the Father testified over and over and over again. It wasn't just Jesus doing this. It was God the Father doing this over and over again. We see at Jesus' baptism, the skies open up. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus visibly, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son. God testified that Jesus came from heaven, so there was no doubt. Dear friends, even at the end of Jesus' life, leading up to the crucifixion, there was not one single person, even his fiercest enemy, who denied that Jesus was a clear supernatural miracle worker. Not one. His enemies never denied it. They just said his power came from Satan. And then he said, unless you believe in me, you cannot be saved. You cannot go where I'm going. What do you mean by that? You cannot be with God in heaven. So he wasn't saying that if you follow him closely enough, no. He wasn't saying, if, if you don't let me help you get to heaven, no. He says, unless you trust in me, trust in what I do instead of you, trust in my righteousness rather than your own, unless you do that, you cannot be saved. Now, the, the really old theologians used to say that we need an alien righteousness, an alien righteousness. That doesn't mean a Martian needs to do things for us. Alien means foreign, from outside of us. We're not trusting in what God can do in us, although that is lovely. We, we look forward to that. We pray for that. But we're not trusting in that. We're looking forward to obedience to God's laws that someone else did. But what Jesus did instead of us, not that we came from heaven, not that we obey God's law. Not that we have already taken our punishment, so no big deal. Not that we have been able to raise ourselves from the dead. Know that Jesus did these things instead of you. Coming to Christ is trusting and desiring that he will forgive you and also that he will transform you. And if you've not trusted in Christ with the desire that he will both forgive and transform you. You've not yet come to him.
Trusting in Christ is longing to be forgiven and rescued from sin's slavery. But dear friends, it is a false gospel to trust that your forgiveness will be based on the transformation that Jesus works inside of you after you become a Christian. That's the kind of confidence, that's the fake gospel that that Pharisee, that Jesus said wasn't going to go to heaven. That's what he was doing. Trusting in the work that God did after he became a Christian, after he started following God, after he said he was, he, uh, that the Lord God of Israel was his God. Dear friends, that is a false gospel that will lead you to hell. Yes, we really dearly love the work that God does in us by his spirit after we become Christians. It's so wonderful. But it cannot be our hope and confidence. Your forgiveness is based on the works of Jesus outside of you 20 centuries before you were born. That's your righteousness. An alien righteousness. One that came from heaven that first Christmas. Dear church, our salvation came from heaven. It was sent from heaven. That was the measure of God's love for us. Not simply to help those who help themselves, but to save those who couldn't help themselves, even with God's help. Salvation, forgiveness, or justification is more like the love of a mother caring for a newborn than the love of a father helping a teenage boy fix his car. That is more like sanctification. It's lovely. But forgiveness, justification, salvation is more like the love of a mother caring for a newborn. Something that somebody else is doing for for you, not helping you do. Both are lovely, but we will be in terrible trouble if we mix the two up. So salvation came from heaven for God to do something for us rather than to help us do something. That was true of the first coming, the first advent of the Lord Jesus, and it will be true of the second coming as well. Our hope is what will come from heaven rather than what, we will be, what God will produce on the earth through us. And that is our third point. We cannot redeem the world even with God's help. We cannot redeem the world, not even with God's help. So the first time Jesus came, he purchased the redemption of the world with his blood. He purchased the salvation of sinners with his blood. He purchased a church, a bride of sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. He bore the curse for them. He paid for their sins. He gives his righteousness to all who believe in all the world. And when he rose from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him as Messiah, the God who was also human. The world, the nations, are Christ's inheritance because of what he did when he came from heaven the first time. And because of this victory, won by him and him alone, while people just simply watched him, he has given the church a great commission. Matthew 28, 
verse 18, Jesus says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission, which means the spread of the gospel in the building of the church in all nations, is secured. Because it is a reward from God the Father to God the Son. It is Christ's reward for his suffering. Not only that, but he has given us the strength as we pursue the Great Commission. Notice that he says, behold, I am with you always. Christ is with us. He supplies us the strength to preach. He supplies us with the strength to repent and believe. He supplies us with the strength to teach and to disciple. He supplies the church with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which he also purchased with his blood. And as the gospel goes into all the world, it saves. It is the power of God unto salvation. It saves. It makes men and women new creatures. It rescues people out of darkness and brings them into Christ's marvelous light. And it has resulted in the budding and growing of churches in all corners of the world. It transforms the lives of people who believe. And that impacts the lives of the non-believers in their lives. It is a great blessing to a family when a father converts, or a mother, or a wife, or when a boss converts, or when a, an employee converts, or when a neighbor converts, or a governor or a king converts. This is a blessing. And we have seen the great success of the Great Commission. If the disciples when Christ gave this to them, if they could see what we see now, they would be stunned and they would fall on their knees and glorify Christ for his faithfulness. Today and tomorrow, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, people of countless languages and cultures are being gathered together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to sing Christmas carols. How Stunning is that. And not only that, we've seen the incalculable benefits that this has brought to the world. Just rulers who, in theory, submit to the king of kings as they rule. The abolishment of slavery at the hands of William Wilberforce, who made, he, he made solid Christian biblical arguments and he commanded parliament to submit to Christ's command. He, he commanded them in the name of Christ to submit to Christ and abolish that slave trade. Hospitals established, common law enshrining human rights to all citizens, the right to a fair trial, innocent until proven guilty. The fact that like a youth can't sign a legal document and be coerced into that without parental consent. All of these things, monogamy. These things are the result, the the side effects of the Great Commission. And there's no doubt you're going to be able to point to sinful things that Christians have done while claiming to represent Christ, and that is tragic. But the truth of the great influence of the Great Commission, it still remains. And if those sins prove anything, is that those men did not submit enough to Christ because those atrocities that they committed were done in disobedience to Christ. 
Dear friends, Christ has worked in and through the church. Christ has built his church through very ordinary means. Through ordinary things which the church has done, such as preaching the gospel off pulpits, preaching the gospel in letters written to family and friends, or from the lips of mom putting their little ones down for a nap. God has used the loving confrontation of brothers and sisters who are straying. Through the loving hospitality and godly compassion shown to neighbors while sharing the gospel. Through the singing of psalms and and hymns, through the praying, through praying alone and praying together, through baptizing with ordinary water and celebrating Lord's Supper with ordinary bread and Welch's. Or gluten-free bread, I guess, too. These things that the church has done, the Lord has been pleased to use. And he has helped us. The church has been built in the world. The whole world has been blessed by this. Even people who hate God one day will stand before him and agree, agree with him that those were good things that he provided for them. But dear friends, our hope is in the second coming from heaven. As good as this may be, and as worthy of thanksgiving God is for providing these things and working through us, the redemption of the world will come in the twinkling of an eye. And it will not be something that he works in and through us, but something that comes from heaven in power. The letters to the Thessalonian church are really helpful with this. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul comforts the church saying, you, you heard the gospel with great pain and suffering and you, you trusted in Christ anyways and, and your lives are transformed and you shared the gospel. He says, your hope is not in what you have done or God will do through you, but in a salvation that comes from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 9 to 10 Paul says this, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And this is the part I want to draw your attention to. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's a trigger warning. We're going to talk about eschatology for a second. End times. All faithful believers look forward to the new heavens and earth. We can all agree on that. We ought all agree to that. The final state of the universe, a world without sin, without the possibility of sin, without any of sin's stains or curses, pain and death and disease and suffering and sorrow and fear and division and grief, a world where only righteousness dwells, just as we treasured last week. We all look forward to that world. And there are many passages in Scripture that speak of those beautiful promises in that perfect eternal life. And there are some passages that are debated by faithful theologians. Are some of these passages, some of these blessings, are they speaking of some things that will happen before Jesus returns? Will some of those lovely things come as the result of the Great Commission? Will there be a time before the Lord returns where the world is essentially converted? When not everyone will be saved, but so many people are converted by being born again that it changes cultures and politics and and arts and laws? Those are the questions that are 
that faithful theologians love to argue with each other about. And it's a lovely intramural debate. Because we are meant to pray for and work for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And we're also meant to be confident that it will be successful. We are called to desire the good of the world. Even the people who don't know the Lord desire for them things which the Lord, the Lord in his word says is good. We should desire and pray for a must, a more just society. Not just for the benefit of believers, but also for non-believers and the glory of God. But dear friends, our sure hope, no matter what transformation happens before the Lord returns, Our sure hope is in what the Lord Jesus will do when he returns. I think this is a moment in church history where we are good to be, it is good for us to be reminded of Psalm 146. Psalm 146 verse 3 to 4 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. We need to be reminded that we are not to put our trust in princes. Our hope is not in what God will do through a better king or a better prime minister. We are to pray for them. In 1 Timothy 2, it says we're to do that. We're supposed to pray that the, the prime minister or the king or the magistrate would rule wisely and well and that it would bring peace to the, to the land and would bring peace to the church. We're to pray for that. And we are supposed to hope for princes. We learn in 1 Corinthians 13 that you're not really loving someone if you're not hoping for their conversion. See, if you're, you're just praying for your child's conversion but not hoping for it, that's useless and that's, that's not love at all. If you kind of, if you're praying, God, please save my neighbor so he doesn't go to hell, but you're not hoping that happens, you're not loving your neighbor. And so we are to hope that God answers those prayers. We're to hope in those, to, to hope for those things. We're to hope that God would convert people so that the world would be a more just place. We're to hope that God would convert a father so that he would stop abusing his family. That is a good thing to hope for and pray for. When the people of Israel were in exile, Jeremiah gave them instructions. He says, you are to work for the peace of the place that you are in. While longing to be back in Israel, yes, but to work for the good of Babylon. To hope for the good of Babylon But the danger was that those Israelites would would lose hope and the greater hope is that they would be returned to their land. And so there's a difference between hoping for something and hoping in it. We can hope for Canadian culture to be transformed. We can even be optimistic about that, but that cannot be our hope. We cannot hope in it though we can hope for it. This is a very important thing because the Lord has promised to work through the church, to help the church, and we can be thankful for it, but that is not our hope. Our hope is in what he would do instead of us. 
Our hope is in the second coming of Christ, dear friends. Something, come, something that comes to us rather than something that Christ works in us and through us. And so it is good for us to desire and pray and work and hope for unjust laws to be repealed. It's good. It's good for us to hope and pray and work for repentance for abortion and greed and the deception in our culture that truth does not exist and we say things like my truth or your truth. Or to turn away from condemning whole groups of people for things that were done by their ancestors. Or for homosexuality or transgenderism or the pornography industry or racism. Or for a form of environmentalism that says that a baby seal is more valuable than a baby human. It is good for us to long for and work for and pray for some of these things to be removed and to be repented of even before the Lord returns. Martin Luther was once asked 500 years ago, what would you do if you knew the Lord Jesus would return tomorrow? And his answer was a little cheeky and he said, I would plant a tree. And that is the kind of thing that the Lord calls us to do while we wait. To love our neighbors, to preach the gospel to them, to pray for their conversion, and to hope that our neighborhoods and communities reflect more of God's justice. But dear friends, let us not put our trust in that. We cannot do that. Our hope, our final hope for the world is a redemption that comes from heaven and which will arrive on the clouds with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we're going to treat politics or celebrities or politicians as only Christ deserves to be treated. Or we will despair. We will be, we, we will, uh, be sorrowful and, and think that God has broken his promise when persecution comes. Or, perhaps worse than that, we will settle for something other than the gospel. We would settle for a world that doesn't love God, but obeys his commands. And we can have lovely intramural debates, pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill. Someone's right. Who knows, it might be me. And there are versions of each of those that reject the gospel. It's true. But those who have a common love for the gospel can and have leaned one way or the other. I imagine, we talked about Anna and Simeon last week, there was a group in Jerusalem that were longing for the consolation of Jerusalem. They were longing for the first coming of Christ. And I can imagine that Anna and Simeon's group of people who were waiting for the consolation of Israel, I can imagine they had similar intramural debates. Perhaps they were fiery and animated. And when Simeon and Anna came back from the temple that day, when they saw the Lord Jesus, when they came to the next gathering of that group of people waiting for the consolation of Israel, the, the coming of the Christ, I can imagine someone slapping the table and saying, I knew it, I was right. And then laughing and slapping his brother in Christ on the back and hugging and no one caring who was right. Because the things that they were all hoping in, most confidently, were true. They were all hoping for a sin-bearing Messiah sent from heaven. 
They knew somehow that he'd come from Bethlehem, but also from Egypt and also from Galilee and Nazareth. And I'm sure they had arguments about how that would all work out. They knew he would be born to the line of David. They knew that he would eliminate sin. They knew that he would save sinners. They knew that he would bring the nations into God's family. And they knew he would renew the world perfectly. Dear church, the first coming of Jesus teaches us about the second coming. That though we rejoice at what God does in us and through us, it is not our hope. Our hope is what he does for us and outside of us and instead of us. Sanctification, or the change that happens in you after you become a Christian, is not our hope, although it is lovely and necessary. Justification is our hope. What Christ did instead of you before you were even born, in which is received in an instant, not gradually, the moment you believe in the gospel. World transformation is not our hope, though it is lovely, and it is necessary for us to want and long for, and for us to rejoice when we see it. But our hope is what will come from heaven, not gradually, but in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. I want to close with the words of the church's one foundation. And I think you're going to get the point. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water in the word. From heaven he came and sought her. From heaven he came and sought her. To be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. Elect from every nation yet one or all the earth Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed. By schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, and their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor, she ever will prevail. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth has union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Dear church, from heaven he came and sought you, and from heaven he will come and get you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that our hope is not in what we do, not even in what we do with your help, 
but in what you have done instead of us. We thank you for sending your son. That he doesn't come from us, but that he came to us. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see what a treasure that is. And for those who are trusting that Christ will not return and there will be no judgment, Lord, I pray you'd open their eyes that they would see the truth and fear it. And Lord, for those who are trusting in their own righteousness and perhaps even thanking you for the strength to obey the law of God and trusting that they have been good enough, oh Lord, let them see that their end is destruction. And instead, Lord, turn our eyes to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, I pray that we would be waiting for a salvation that comes from heaven while working with the strength you provide to spread the gospel over all the earth and to disciple anyone who comes to faith in you and also loving our non-Christian neighbors by wanting just laws for them. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, our eyes would ever be on the hills, ever be looking to heaven for a salvation that will come to us, not from us. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.